Okay, everyone. We're doing our first live broadcast church service from Heights. And uh, I can't tell you how excited I am to be with the seven of us that are here. And uh, uh, a couple things. First of all, I want to tell you that I... Um, I did put sanitizer on my hands before I came up here, so I don't want to, you know, if I even was to touch the camera, I don't want to get anybody sick, so, um, yeah, that was a joke. I kind of miss uh, Sherry Ann Gerardo's contagious laugh, so, <laughs> anyway, a couple things, um, I want to let you know, if you are watching this live, it would be really great for you to comment to us. Um, and if you're watching in a group, just go ahead and, and put in the comments how many people are watching that with you so that we can uh, try to get a count of what's going on and how many people are, are, um, are watching this. Also, um, this tomorrow we start the book of Samuel that we have put together. If you need a book, then go ahead and put that in the comments too, or send it to Text in Church, which is 207 4443, or um, even a, um, a Remind app. Let us know um, if you need a book, and we will try to get that to you this week. If you prefer not to do a book, and you would prefer to have a, a um, bookmark, and you read your own Bible and, and do the bookmark, following along so that we can continue to read together as a church body. So that'll be there, and we've got those two, and we can bring those to you too. As a matter of fact, I think um, Dottie Hatchell said that she would like to have something like this. If you don't want this or this, but you would like to have a PDF, um, text Barb at bscales at heightschristian.org, and she will let you know. She will send that to you, that, BD, that PDF, the BDF. What's a BDF? I have no idea. All right. So, we are going to dive in this week into 1 Samuel. And oh, this, is, this is one of my uh, favorite uh, books of the Bible. As you know, I love history. And um, this is one of the, the ones where the transition, we, we, we read uh, Judges and we read Ruth. And now we're going to be going to Samuel. So, we have Israel that's this kind of this loose um, group of tribes that are doing things, whatever they want, their own way, the transition in Samuel brings it from that loose conglomeration, the, the spiritual um, depravity that is going on at this time. By the time the book of First and Second Samuel gets through, it becomes a united Israel under a monarchy. And so we get, to, we get to see this. We get to watch through a number of characters. But what I first want to do today is I want to read the first 17 verses in 1 Samuel. And now, tomorrow you're going to start reading this, but we'll have already jumped ahead and we'll have already read the first 17, and then you can finish, I think, the rest of the chapter. You can say, hey, well, we're ahead. We're doing this. So, here we go. Let's read. First Samuel, starting in verse 1. And you can read with your Bible open, 
or maybe you have a Bible app and use your phone, or listen to me. We don't have it up on the screen. We have no screen today, which means no maps, which we'll do our best. Here we go. So starting in verse one, there was a certain man from Amathane, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeraham, son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah. The other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty. At Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you which you have asked of him. And we know, most of us, the rest of the story. You see, 1 Samuel begins, Israel is at a low point spiritually, as I've said. The priesthood is corrupt. The Ark of the Covenant is not with the tabernacle. Idolatry is practiced. And the judges were dishonest. But through the influence of godly Samuel and David... These conditions are reversed, and 2 Samuel concludes with the anger of the Lord being withdrawn from Israel. First of all, let's look at the title, 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel. 1 and 2 Samuel were considered as one book in the earliest Hebrew manuscript, and were later divided into two books by the translators of the Greek version which we commonly know as the Septuagint. Then there was a division followed by the Latin Vulgate, 
which was the Bible in Latin in Roman times. English translators and modern English Hebrews later, Hebrew text and the English versions call the divided book 1st and 2nd Samuel. Now, the Septuagint designated 1st and 2nd books of the kingdoms. It wasn't called Samuel. And then the Vulgate had 1st and 2nd Samuel as 1st and 2nd Kings. And our what we know as 1st and 2nd Kings was second and uh, was third and fourth kings. So during during the Vulgate, it was first and second kings, third and fourth kings. Anyway, just a little trivia there for you. The author and the date is important. Now, Hebrew or Jewish tradition ascribes the writing of this book or books to Samuel. However, um, Samuel dies before he even gets to the second Samuel. So he probably couldn't. And then from a, um, a, a verse in 1 Chronicles, actually 1 Chronicles 29, 29, they think it was a combined writing of Samuel, prophet Nathan, and the prophet Gad. Where those combinations is what, how we get the book or books of Samuel. But Samuel cannot be writ the writer just by himself. And maybe even with Nathan and Gad, though they were prophets of the Lord, they were prophets of the Lord during David's lifetime. So they probably couldn't have written the complete records. We believe that the written records of all three of these prophets could have been used for information in the writing. But the human author is probably and is unknown. It's unknown who wrote it. We know that the Holy Spirit wrote it and using a human author. And it appears because in the book, there's a division between Judah and Israel. They make that designation. So it could very well have been written during the time of the divided kingdom, which we don't find until we're into First and Second Kings. So let's look at the background and the setting. The majority of the action recorded in First and Second Samuel took place in and around the central highlands. Now, if I had a map, this is where I would turn and I would show you the central highlands. And this is where Ephraim, the, the central part of, of Canaan, Ephraim in the, in the central part would be the northern. And Judah would be the southern part, that central area. Okay? It's about uh, 90 miles um, north and south and about 15 to 35 miles east and west. Most all of that stuff can be found in First and Second Samuel just in this area. Okay? So, for example, um, Shiloh, Ramah, Shiloh where the, the tabernacle is, Ramah, which is the birthplace and the place where um, Samuel dies, is found in that area. Gilbea. And this is where Saul, when he is king, this is his central locale where he does. That's found in this area in, in the tribe of Benjamin. And then Bethlehem, which is the birthplace of David. And then Jerusalem, which becomes the city of David. All of that is in, found in that 90-mile area and that 30, 15 to 35-mile area in the central part. Most all the events can be found there. 
We also believe that the events of 1st and 2nd Samuel took place between the years of 1105 B.C., which is like the birth of Samuel, all the way to the last words of David, which is around 970, 971 B.C. So we're looking um, at about... Um, 100 years, 120 years, maybe even 130. So, um, this book, or books, 1st and 2nd Samuel, center and they focus around three men. Samuel, who is known as the greatest judge of Israel, the last judge, maybe, if you will. And then you have Saul. He's the second one that it's focused on. And then David, who's known as, in, is considered the greatest of all the kings of Israel. In fact, when we get to First and Second Kings, all of the other kings are compared to David. Whether they were like David or whether they were not like David. Okay, so we, we have these three men. So I could spend the rest of this um, sermon talking about those three men. However, we are in the middle of an um, epidemic around the world. And our government has said, hey, you can't have more than ten people together at any given time just for safety's sake. And we want to abide by that. So I would like to include ten people that we find in First and Second Samuel. So, no more, just ten people. So, let's go through, and people that, as you read, you will think about these ten. I think these are the ten, um, in my humble estimation, are the keys to First and Second Samuel. Okay? So, let's start with a few of them. First of all, we are introduced to Eli. In, in our reading today, Eli, he was the high priest at Shiloh. Now, there's some. We know that from the book of the the book of the law, the five first five books, the Pentateuch. The high priest was supposed to come from Aaron. We really don't know if Eli was from Aaron. We do. There's been some traditional look to see that Eli was. He may have been actually. Uh, an ancestor of Moses from Gershom. So we don't really know, but he is serving as high priest. He, um, we know he comes from the tribe of Levi. We know that for sure. But how he ended up being in Shiloh and him being the high priest, it's, it's sort of our none, and a lot of us to conjecture. Listen, when we look at Eli and he's serving the high priest, we really don't have any knock against Eli. He seems to be hearing from the Lord and trying to do what's right. The only knock against Eli is that he fails to restrain his sons in the priesthood. Because Hophni and Phinehas, his sons, don't do what's right. They use their position as priests to um, to fornicate and to steal food from people. And whereas Eli probably should have said, you cannot be priest because you're not doing what's right. He ends up just kind of 
speaking against them. Oh, don't do these things, but he still allows them to be the priest. So this is the knock against Eli. That's our first one. Can't go real long on all of them because then my sermon would be four hours long. But number two, we are also introduced to Hannah. Oh, by the way, with Eli, um, a lot of the, the writers that you see in the Old Testament very distinctly bring contrasts. We, you have good and bad, and so you do compare and contrast of certain people. For Eli, he's, he's the good high priest in, in contrast to Hophni and Phinehas, who are bad priests. Okay, so there's three, so we'll talk about that. Then there's Hannah, who is the mother of Samuel, and that she dedicates to the Lord her firstborn. God honors her prayer. She is um, barren for a long period of time. She is in anguish because she has no children. Her, um, her husband, Elkanah, has another wife, Penina, and she ridicules, makes fun of, irritates Hannah. And so she makes this vow that if you give me a child, I will dedicate it to the Lord. And the thing about Hannah is that she's faithful. She gets a son, and she, after weans him, she, she takes him to be raised by Eli. She, she says, I made this vow, and I've done it. Now, the contrast here that we see in Hannah is, you look at Israel's history, this is the fourth woman that we know for sure who is barren for a long period of time. We have, we have Sarah, we have Rachel, and then we have Manoah's wife in Judges, and then we have Hannah. And it's interesting because Manoah's wife is the one who ends up having Samson. And so the contrast for Samuel is Samson. But Hannah, in contrast, is to Sarah. Sarah, when, when she was told she might have a kid, she laughs. She doesn't have faith. And Rachel, when she, she blames her husband. Give me children. She, we, don't, we don't see that faithful reliance on Lord and giving a vow. And Hannah seems to be very faithful. We don't see her ever responding in kind to Penina. We see her only seeking the Lord and doing what is right. And she decides to dedicate her son as a Nazarite. When you see that, when we read that passage today, we talk about no, no razor would touch his head. This is the sign of being a Nazarite. Okay? And when she says, well, you're drunk. She says, no, I'm not drinking wine or beer. Okay? That's another sign of the Nazarite vow. Even while she's doing she's not doing any of that. So she's, she is dedicating her son. Okay, number three. Samuel. The thing about Samuel, which is just amazing, is that for any Israelite man... To serve in any position, Samuel does it all. I mean, he does it all. He's, he's a seer. He's a priest. He's a prophet. He's a judge. He does all of these things. 
as a seer, we, we know that he's a seer, which is different from prophet. This is someone, a seer is almost like can see beyond what's going on. When, when Saul loses his donkeys and he's going around, his friend says, hey, there's a seer in this town. Maybe we should go ask him. So it's almost like an office. You go to see him and you took a gift to them and they would tell you what's going on. We don't have many, many seers today. You know? I mean, from God. I mean, we have all kinds of people that are claimed to be knowing what's going on. But this is a seer that God gives him a gift. So we have, we have a seer. We have a priest. Later on we see, we see Samuel doing the sacrificing. He's the one that's supposed to do the sacrifice. He takes the place of Eli because Hophni and Phinehas end up getting killed. And so... He's the de facto high priest. Then we have prophet. Many things that Samuel says. He is here. Thus saith the Lord. He talks both to Saul and to David. Saying exactly what the Lord has told him to do. And of course he's the greatest judge. And by judge he's also. Samuel many times becomes the military commander of Israel. And so. The contrast here, like I said before, is Samson. Samson is dedicated as a Nazarite too. And he has great strength. No razors touch his head. Yet he uses that position for his own selfish reasons. He doesn't do what God has called him to be, to be deliverer of Israel. He uses it for his own, his own selfish needs. And so Samson and Samuel are in contrast to one another. Okay, number four, we're introduced to a tall young man named Saul, and he becomes the first king of Israel, appointed by God. But yet, we see Saul to be someone who is more worried about what the world says than what God says. Samuel continually tries to encourage Saul to do what is right, and Saul doesn't. He, he acts impetuously. He acts ungodly in many ways. And finally, God says, you are not going to be, you and your line are not going to be king any farther. And the rip of the garment. And we'll read about that later in, the, in further weeks. But so the contrast for Saul is David. David is the one that's after God's own heart. Now, the interesting part of this is that we see from First and Second Samuel, we see Saul acting good and bad in certain times. We see David acting good and bad in certain times. Well, how come David, because of his murder and adultery, and, and all of that, how come his kingdom isn't ripped from him? And it all comes back with that contrast of interior, who God is in their life. Okay. So the next person, number five, is Jonathan. We see Jonathan, he's the, he's the son of Saul, but he quickly realizes that he is not going to be king. He doesn't try to be king. He ends up befriending David and in fact, protecting David 
from his father. He acts honestly. He acts, um, and at the very end, he ends up dying with his father in battle, standing with him. And so we see that um, Jonathan is someone who is interested in doing the things of the Lord, for not his own, his own self. And the person in contrast for Jonathan is another son of Saul, Ishbosheth, who, after Saul's death, seizes the kingdom wrongly. And, and he gets into battle with David's group and... Um, there's a power struggle when, in fact, clearly God has anointed David as the next king. We see this because Samuel, and Samuel anoints both the kings. He anoints Saul, and then later, even before David is even thought to be king, he is anointed king. And one of the things that's admirable about David is that he refuses to take the throne, to usurp Saul's reign. He waits and lets, lets God do it, even though he has a destiny of being the king. So that turns us to David. He's the greatest king of Israel, as I've said before. He's also a shepherd. means he's used to working for a living. He's a musician. He's a poet. And oddly enough, Jesus actually calls David a prophet. And many of the things that David says turns out to have messianic prophecy. So, um, the contrast for David would be Saul. But we see David acting in many ways just like Saul. He does things wrong. And the Bible is clear that David is not a perfect person. We see him in his sin with Bathsheba. We see him with his, in turn, trying to cover it up by getting his, her first husband killed. We see him acting impetuously in, in, in counting Israel, which is the exact violation of the law, what he's doing. But yet David continues to return to the Lord. Not perfect, but continuing to return to the Lord. And this is one of the greatest things about First and Second Samuel. Number seven, someone you will see a lot, is Joab. Okay? Now, Joab is a cousin of David. He is, um, he is the son. Actually, there are three sons. Uh, Joab, um, Abishai, and uh, Asher. Not Asher. Anyway, the third son, yeah, it is Asher. Um, the three sons, they are from one of uh, David's other brothers. And so they, they come alongside David, they support David. But one of the things about Joab, and I, for years when I taught this at, at Hope Christian School, I would just tell everybody, okay, with Joab, just know that he kills everybody. Joab, we see through the entire first and second Samuel, Joab is always killing somebody. 
or he's making sure that someone gets killed. And so he doesn't act like a military commander. He acts pretty selfishly. We see them when he kills Abner. We see them when he kills Amasa. These are the rival generals that were just following somebody else. And they were good men, honorable men, but yet Joab kills them. And toward the end of David's life, he tells his son Solomon, you cannot let Joab get older and just die. So Joab is a source of contention for David. He does a lot of things that David says, but he's kind of a rough customer. He's kind of a violent man. And he does some of the things that um, nobody else will. Almost like a a hired killer. And so you need to watch for him. Um, The contrast for Joab are the people that I said, Abner and Amasa. These were men on the wrong side, but they were also very honorable men. And they probably would have made very good generals for David, but they never made it because Joab kills them. So, all right, so that's... Gosh, we got to the first seven. What time is it? Hey, we're rocking. All right, so let's go number eight. The eighth person we're going to talk about is Bathsheba. Now, um, Chronicles list, but don't even mention Bathsheba. There's like, hmm, that woman. They don't really they don't even identify her. But First and Second Samuel identify Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah who... David commits adultery with while all the kings while the battles are going on King David stays in Jerusalem gets into trouble Bathsheba tells him I'm pregnant and then he tries to set um, her husband up thinking that he this would be her his son this doesn't work again David contacts Joab hey when uh, when the, the, wherever the fighting's the fiercest, put this guy and if, then withdraw. And he ends up getting killed. Again, Joab's a part of this. But Bathsheba um, turns out to be kind of an, an honorable person later on as the queen. She looks out after her son Solomon. She makes sure that Things go right with Solomon. And um, she seems to be turn the corner in doing that. And so the, the person of contrast for Bathsheba would be Saul's daughter who ends up marrying David. And that's Michael. Who um, is just an irritant. And that she accuses David many times of wrongdoing. She makes fun of him while he's dancing as the, the tabernacle is being brought to Jerusalem so that it can be in the center of um, David's city. And she makes fun of him. She chastises him for not wearing enough garments. And she actually ends up dying childless. So that would be a contrast to Bathsheba. Then there's number nine. Number nine is the prophet Nathan. He's a prophet of God. He's also an advisor to David. And in the reading, it appears that Nathan, even though he's a prophet of God, is also sort of a friend to David. 
You know, if you're a king, it's a little hard to have friends or to know who your real friends are because you're the king. If you try to be friends with the king, so you get stuff. But Nathan doesn't appear to be this way. As a matter of fact, Nathan is the one who calls David out in his sin with Bathsheba. He, he goes to David's residence and he tells him a story. And he tells him a story of this man who just had one, one little lamb. And someone else took it and did it. And David is outraged. And Nathan, as a friend, points to David and says, you are that man. Now listen, this is the king, and if, you, if he wanted to, he could have you killed if you disagreed with him. But Nathan does it anyway, and he stands up and says, you are that man. And urges David to repent. And in fact, David does repent. And so... Um, so the person in contract to Nathan is any prophet is compared to Moses. Moses, every prophet from Isaiah, Ezekiel, any of those prophets that are good, they're always compared to which one is the greatest prophet is Moses. So we don't know all we can about Nathan. We do know that he wrote down several things during David's reign as to be as a record. We find this in in First in First Chronicles twenty nine twenty nine, and the prophet Gad wrote down to keep a record of what was going on. And those were probably primary source materials that were used in the writing of this book to become books. Okay, and then number ten. And that's Absalom. Absalom is the son of David who I think he's a lot like Joab. He's a man of violence. Um, Amnon, one of the other sons of David, rapes his sister Tamar. And Absalom takes justice into his own hands and kills Amnon deceitfully and then flees. And Joab, another man of violence, reaches out to Absalom and brings him back into the fold. And Absalom surreptitiously, I can't even say that, but deceitfully begins to build up people around him so that he can overthrow David's reign. Even though David was supposed to be the king at this time, God's anointed one, he decides that he's probably going to be a better king. And he takes over for a period of time. And at that time, you sort of decide who's on David's side, who's on Absalom's side. Now, ultimately, Absalom is killed for trying to um, revolt from David and his reign. But David is, is saddened by it. And so the contrast for Absalom is the son Solomon. Absalom is a man of war, a man of deceit, whereas Solomon is a man of, um, he, he's not a man of war. In fact, that's one of the reasons why 
God allows Solomon to build the temple because he's not a man of war. And um, whereas Absalom is rash, it seems to be Solomon is someone who is thoughtful, provoking, and wise. So there you go. We're not going to go any further with with uh, the ten key people because we don't want to break any laws. And so um, those are let's in review. They are Eli, Hannah, Samuel, Saul. Jonathan, David, Joab, Bathsheba, Nathan, and Absalom. Hmm. Okay, so in your groups, we would like you to um, stick around and amongst yourselves in your home. Answer a couple of questions about this. So first one would be this. Which of these ten people... Do you most associate with in your own life journey? I'll, I'll repeat that. Which of these ten people do you most associate with in your own life journey? Do, do you see yourself like Eli? Do you, do you see yourself like Hannah? Do you, do you see yourself like David? Maybe do you see yourself like Absalom? As we, as we begin this journey... Through First and Second Samuel, and as we read this daily, we want to make sure that we're looking. At, these are real people. These are people that have lived, and there are some similarities in our lives, and there's some differences. So I, I would love to tell you that I associate myself with David, but probably not. Um, I'm not near as bold as David, and sometimes I sort of see myself kind of like Eli. And, um, um, and it's a struggle. And there's, there's times I think I'm a pretty good guy, but you know what? There are times when um, I struggle to do what's right. And so, anyway. The second question. David was anointed king long before he actually became king. The question is, what are you anointed to do by God? What is your destiny that God has for you? And are you stepping into that? Are you, are you, do you know, and I think most of you do, God has something for me to do in this life. And it's not to acquire wealth. It's not to get a bigger car or bigger house. It's not to Talk about other people. It's God has a destiny for me. And are you doing it? Or are you kind of saying, well, I'll do it later. I'll do it later. Now is the time for you to to talk it with your group. Talk it with your family. To say, what is the destiny that God has for you? It should involve several things. It should involve something about sharing the good news. We, we as, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we are called to build and make disciples. Okay, so that should be part of your destiny. What does that look like? And as many people as we have in our community are as many different stories. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's 
in, the, in your neighborhood. Maybe it's directing your children to follow the Lord. All of those things are wonderful. And none is better than the other. But the key is for you to fulfill your destiny. And to follow the Lord with all your heart. And to do what he calls you to do. My friends, who are we doing? Oh my gosh, perfect timing. I hope that you were able to hear this. I hope that if you have any questions, you can go over it again. But spend this time now reflecting. Listen, we, whenever we read the Word of God, we need to say, what does this mean to me? And apply it to our lives. So my prayer is that this message will find you well that this message will be encouraging to you and that you will give God glory in no matter what you do this week. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for all that you do. Father God, you are still on the throne. You are still God. And we acknowledge you and we give you thanks. Help us this week to do what we need to do, to follow you, to serve you, and to give you glory. And to give your name a good name. And it's that name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you in seven days. <laughs>